Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited for this conversation. (laughs) And you guys out there listening, I have to tell you, this is a person who I was on his podcast And I think from damn near the minute we started talking, I was like, we are kindred spirits. Like, I love this person. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah, it's like such good conversation and great energy and connection. And I'm so excited to have you on, Mr. Nate Kelly. Please take a minute and tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. Thank you so much. And I couldn't agree more. It was literally when you popped up on my camera, I knew immediately that we just had a connection. And the conversations that we've had since have have really been special. So I appreciate your time on my show, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, Yes, I have a very similar platform. I host the Sobriety Diaries podcast, and we are inching up to episode 100, but it's conversational. Uh, it's very casual. I invite guests on to share their stories of addiction and recovery. And we talk a lot about maybe a little more taboo topics and addiction and recovery in the queer community um, and perhaps some um, uh, trauma uh, that that has led to guests' um, addiction. Uh, so we we kind of toe the line of the traditional story of recovery and those perhaps that you don't hear everywhere. Um, but I like to say that, you know, it started very informally on YouTube and I got sick of just telling my own story so many times that I started to invite others to share theirs. So it's kind of you know, sprouted its own wings and and we've, you know, created a, an online community where others are helping others and, and my former guests are connecting with uh, current ones and it's just a really beautiful community to see sort of take shape and uh, I couldn't be more grateful to, to sort of be the one that's um, introduced folks to one another. So, I just celebrated seven years of sobriety and, you know, every day I feel like I'm learning something new and adding to my arsenal of, you know, you and I both have a 12-step background, so we hear toolkit or tool toolbox, tool belt a lot, but yeah, I think I'm adding things to my, my tool belt regularly and I am so happy that I get to share that in a public platform. Yeah, it is amazing and I am so grateful for anyone who is willing to share their story openly because to me, that was one of the big motivators, especially in doing the podcast, was not only to put more information out and really answer questions from an experience standpoint, but also to kind of take away some of the mysticism about Mm. recovery in 12 steps because it was, I mean, I'm 
really grateful also that I didn't have any major hangups with AA before I went there. Like I was yes. pretty open to whatever. I didn't really care. I knew there would be things I didn't agree with, but I didn't care. Like everybody on the planet doesn't have to do things my way. I was okay with that. Um, <laughs> but it's so hard learning the ropes, you know, and I remember sitting in those rooms and having all the beautiful things happen, right? I loved the conversations. I loved the people. I loved listening to everybody share their lives. And I was learning about myself every day. And at the same time, it's like all of the lingo and how they talk about things and the one-liners and yes. all of that stuff was really hard. And I just wanted to be super open about that because I just want people to get help. I don't care if you don't want to go to 12 steps. That's yes. fantastic. But I want you to do something rather than nothing. And the more we can kind of pull the curtain back and make it not so weird or strange or scary or people thinking we're a cult. I'm like, I promise you I'm not in a cult. <laughs> I just don't even have commitment on that level in any right. area of my <laughs> life. No. I couldn't be a part of something like that. Um but yeah, just the more open we can be about it, I feel like the more people will be willing to get help, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And I think to your point, it can be a little daunting when you hear this language around you that you aren't familiar with yet. And I remember in my first few meetings, just pass, you know, pass, I wasn't sure that I'd say the right thing or that I had anything to contribute yet that people would want to hear or that they could take away from. And I slowly just started learning that my story is enough and my story is worth taking away. And people wanted to hear perhaps lingo that I had or that I could add to a conversation. And I realized that that's what makes it its whole. That's what makes mm -hmm. it um, a great meeting is when mm -hmm. perhaps people that don't normally share do, or you hear from someone who typically may sit in the corner. But yes, to your point, Colt, I, I barely have time to do my laundry. Like there, I'm, I'm getting to a meeting and I'm sharing and I'm, you know, taking part or being a, a part of, of that community um, that is really focused on the other person and not myself for once. Yeah, which, you know, is a was it's a, a historical, yeah, a historical <laughs> event in my life to learn right. how to, to be even aware of another person outside of myself was its own yes. miracle. <laughs> well, let's talk about podcasting for a minute. You're coming up on yeah. your 100th episode. Yes. So what has that journey been like? You know, it is a challenge. And even sitting here now, I, I'm thinking of, oh, what episode am I editing? And, and when's my next deadline? And I, I will say just in full transparency, it's, it's a lot more work than I thought that it was. And, you know, I spent months and months sort of educating myself and doing the sort of self-study and, and listening just to a shit ton of podcasts, pardon my mm -hmm. French, to understand really the format and like the layout that I wanted my show to be. And, oh, I love how they do this. And I, I perhaps don't want to do this in, in my show. And really taking the time to 
make sure that I was going to do it right. I knew that I didn't have a budget for, you know, a producer and editors and, and things like that to kick things off. So I wanted to make sure that I had the skill set uh, to produce a show that I would be proud of. And I can say that that we did that or that I did that. And it started, literally, I posted on Reddit. Um, it was a, a an image that said, are you in recovery? Are you willing to share your story publicly? Please email me here. And that's how I got my first guest. And really, it, it, the ball just started rolling uh, with that one Reddit post. So I got my first maybe 15 or 20 episodes off of that one post. And luckily, it started to gain some traction on Instagram. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm, I'm funny and can produce some funny Instagram content. And so the profile started picking up a, a bit of um, popularity as well. And, you know, before I knew it, people were reaching out to me and wanting to be on the show and reaching out because they wanted to share their story. And they were inspired by perhaps an episode that they heard or a guest that I had had on. And, and you know, people started reaching out saying that they would love to share. So it's it's sort of to the point now where you know, I can look at things from a sort of categorical standpoint, like what are some things we haven't covered on the podcast yet? What are some tactics or is it the holidays? Is it, like I said, addiction in the queer community? What are some things that we can cover based on categories or topics that perhaps we haven't in the past? And and then looking sort of at our pool of guests or people who have submitted bios to sort of fit those categories so that we can uh, include, you know, I, I want to be as inclusive as possible with the things that we cover. Yeah. But it is a lot of work, damn it. It's a <laughs> lot of work. And I don't think people really understand that it is a lot of work, yeah. especially when you do it long term, right? And mm -hmm. I think they say that the, I can't remember the statistics exactly now, but the majority of people that start podcasts don't even get past episode 10. Because I, I think, right, because you kind of have this idea of grandeur and you're going to have this podcast and it's going to be so much fun. And then you right. start to realize how much work it is. And then people are waiting for you, right? Then it becomes responsibility and you have to be yes. dependable. And then you're committed, which I'm completely a commitment phobe. So that <laughs> had its own challenges. Me too. But, but now I'm to the point where that is a level of accountability that I am not used to. So huge, and yeah. So that that is in itself enough for me to be like, I can't turn back now, even if I wanted yeah. to. There are people, people that are waiting and counting on me, and, and that's yes. what I need. You know, that yeah. is why I turn the microphone on every week, and 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 uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, and I won't. Uh, let people down, especially when, you know, we we're, we're it's serious stuff. We're talking about you know potentially saving lives here, and it's also leading by example, right? Like the greatest stuff I learned in my recovery was really from watching my sponsor, mm. who I also refer to as my coach, right? I mean, he was really my first life coach, and. Yeah. But so many of the things that really sunk in for me were his actions. It wasn't his words. It was like, it was what he did and how he did things and how he behaved and how he showed up in the world. Mm. And being dependable was one of those things that was so important 
to him to create stability and to foster that trust, which of course I had never even considered (laughs) in my life. (laughs) I never even thought of that, you know, Um, but also the, the longevity of recovery and making it a priority for the long term, right? When I met my sponsor, he was already, I think, 20 years sober or close to that. And he was in a meeting every single day. And there I was at day one and day 10 and whatever and going through my journey. And he was there every day. And, And I really took that in. And I was like, okay, like, this is a lifelong thing. Like if I want to be a sober person, then I have to pay attention to this and it has to be a priority of my life no matter what. So it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to then go out and live those things, right? But they are the most important, impactful things also. And having that accountability from your audience or even just people on social media, whatever, it does take it to another level. We hear suit up and show up, right? And if that's the the minimum and, and the baseline, I am so happy to do that. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another thing with podcasting that people don't realize is that podcast world is very lonely. You know, it really oh, is. Lon- you're in a box yes. just talking yes. to you. Yes. Like you're either, you're on the microphone alone, like sometimes with guests, but a lot alone also. And then it's the editing and it's planning and it's picking people, like going through all the applications of everybody that wants to come on the show and coordinating those things. I mean, it's crazy how much work it is. You know, you're editing and I'm thinking to myself, am I crazy? I am the only person now who has recorded edited, produced this episode that I'm going to send out to potentially have thousands of people download and listen to. I hope it's it makes sense. You know what I mean? And it's a little different for solo episodes versus if you have a guest on, but it goes back to that thing where I have this imposter syndrome where I said at the meetings, does anyone want to hear what I have? To, can I contribute to this conversation at all? But then it's like, okay, I have made it at least to the point where I know that I can contribute to a conversation. People want to hear what I have to say. And I have to remember that sometimes. And it's, you know, it's, I think imposter syndrome is kind of a buzzword now, but Mm -hmm. it it certainly is that sense of uh, self-doubt that creeps up from time to time for sure. I have to check myself on that. Yeah, I think that's everybody's fear when people talk about, all the fear they have about speaking in meetings, right? I think it's that imposter syndrome. Like, do I have yeah. anything to say? Can't and listen, when I was new, I could barely put a sentence together. Oh, More yeah. or less do right. it out loud for people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't even formulate a sentence for myself, more or less anybody else. But it is kind of that imposter syndrome. It's like, am I, am I going to make sense? And I can't tell you how many times, because I used to really wing it on my solo episodes. And sometimes I still do because I know my topics. Like I've been doing this right. work for a long, long time. But I can't tell you how many times like I would go on, I'd start doing a solo episode and I'd be like, I'm going to tell you five things. Like I would only say four or something because I didn't have any outline keeping me on track, you know? Right, right. But yeah, it's kind of funny. I try to be a little more prepared these days <laughs> when it's, you know, going out to as many people as listen to it. It's like, all right, right. I should I should probably yeah. make more sense. <laughs> 
let me put something on paper first. <laughs> so for you, what happened in your life that made you understand you had a problem that was bigger than you could just fix on your own? So, you know, I, it's funny before I think might have been before you hit record, we were, we were talking about our, our similarities in our Midwestern upbringing. And I am just a small town, Ohio boy, born and bred. And, uh, you know, drinking was sort of the thing to do as, as sad and as sick as that sounds. And I looked forward to it, honestly, in, in my early years of high school, I couldn't wait. And, you know, it, my story is not unusual as to how it started. You know, I used alcohol to, as a social lubricant and, and to uh, sort of let my guard down and, and fit in a bit more. But beyond that, I think that there was always something deeper within myself and knowing that I didn't necessarily fit in with the boys, but I knew that I wasn't a girl. So it left me in this weird limbo where, you know, the girls would be having a sleepover and they were all my best friends, but I could, I wasn't invited because I was a boy, but the boys weren't inviting me to play baseball because I sucked at it and, <laughs> and I was very <laughs> feminine. So it, it literally left me in this limbo for the majority of my childhood. So, you know, I knew that I was different, but I didn't know necessarily what it was um, until, you know, high school or perhaps a, a little before when, you know, your s sexual feelings start and I realized that I was attracted to the boys and, and that's probably why they weren't inviting me places. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't know still really what that meant. I knew, you know, this was the early 90s and there wasn't a representative of, of what a, a gay man looks like on television. And there weren't really any positive portrayals of what a gay lifestyle is. You know, I remember being home from school one day and, and watching maybe Sally Jesse Raphael or Maury or one of these 90s talk shows. And it was like, you know, man, and who is the wife in this gay relationship. And it was just always a negative connotation to anything that I saw related to gay culture as a youth. So once I realized that I identified um, as a gay youth still at this time, I knew that nobody was going to know. And it was going to be this secret that I kept perhaps forever uh, or until I felt otherwise. But I knew that this enormous part of myself was a secret and this enormous part of who I was to the core I was not able to share with anyone else. So that really started to take a toll on me as I came more into adulthood and I ended up leaving a small town to a, a bigger small town and, and went away to college, but still was very much in the closet for, for my first couple of years at college and really amped up my drinking at this point because I knew that I needed and wanted to come out, but I didn't have the courage to do it. So anytime that I wanted to experiment sexually or get the nerve to 
talk to a boy or shoot my shot with somebody or kiss somebody, I had to be completely intoxicated. But I knew that I had to explore these things in order to truly be myself. So it was this very vicious cycle, love-hate relationship with alcohol that I thought that I really, truly needed to have any sense of normalcy in my life. So that continued through college. I got off here and there with with not many consequences, um, you know, other other than a couple bar fights. And I got my first DUI in college. But uh, these things that really didn't matter to me when it came down to it. You know, I paid my fines and moved on and, and forgot about it. And, you know, the black eye healed and I moved on and I forgot about it. And, you know, it wasn't until my consequences started to present themselves as internal, really hatred and this internal homophobia that I had, not only for myself, but for gay culture. And as a gay man that has this fear of other gay men because it brings out who I am as a person and it makes me... It's all so hard. Internal homophobia is a, is a hard thing. And this internal hatred that I masked with alcohol for the better part of, of a, a decade, I think, was what really helped me to realize that this was bigger than just drinking alcohol. And this was bigger than just putting down a bottle. And I guess to answer your question, to answer your question, that is what helped me to realize that a, I wasn't going to be able just to put the bottle down and stop on myself. And that B, this was a much larger issue that I needed to um, look into and work with my therapist to uncover and, and work on for the rest of my life. It's always amazing to me also when you think about how much pop culture and media and the things that we're exposed to, how much that plays a role really in our identity in so many ways. And and now we're seeing it a lot in addiction too, right? Where I feel like every single show that's on television now has an addiction storyline, right? Like it's finally I was being just talking talked about, about. That. Yes. Yeah. So, and listen, some of them are not doing us any favors, but, <laughs> but some of them <laughs> are, are doing pretty well. But just thinking about that, like you not seeing anybody, any positive connotation of people living a lifestyle that you felt drawn to live, right? That was your authentic lifestyle, but not having any example of that. Right. Like how would you even know what to do or how to be? Right. So that, you know, initially it, it was just that negativity. And that's where the hatred stemmed from because it was always uh, looked at negatively or frowned upon or, you know, not even a, not even the, I don't even remember seeing like the the funny gay neighbor or the funny gay cousin that so many, so many of our, our gay actors nowadays have to play. But yeah, there was really no example whatsoever of I said something that I knew so truly about myself. Yeah, it's interesting too, because then I feel like there was this whole 
persona of the party person, right? And that the gay lifestyle is just this crazy party of sex and drugs and drinking. And and then I think like, how would you figure out how to be you if that wasn't you, <laughs> you know? yeah. when, when that's really like kind of what it was. And, and I remember, I don't remember how long ago it was definitely the nineties, but, um, queer as folk was on, which is one of my all time yes. favorite shows. Such a good show. Such a great show. And, um, the L word eventually yeah. was on also another great, great show that, that shed a very different light on, the lifestyle, right? And what it looks like. And I remember being shocked. Now, listen, I don't know anything about anything, but I remember <laughs> being shocked like with the L word and even a little bit in Queer's Folk where it was educated, successful people with good jobs, making yes. money. And there was the element of partying and being out of control, but it's so normalized it for me, right? In and made it seem, but again, made it seem like it was this club lifestyle. And then how would you find your way in that if that wasn't your lifestyle? It's true. And I think a lot of, you know, the the gay youth fall into that trap. And it is, uh, you know, the, I don't think, I don't know if raves are still a thing, but that's how I'm picturing it in my head. But this uh, sort of nightclub lifestyle where it, it's where you have to go to to be around your peers it's like where it's where we flock to it's where we feel safe it's where we meet like-minded people and don't have to be nervous about who who's looking over our shoulder and that that comfort doesn't exist everywhere that you go as a gay man or as a queer person that ease of, you know, that comfort and just feeling safe in your environment doesn't exist everywhere that you go. So I think initially, for me, at least as a young gay man, I knew that that comfort would exist there. So I frequented the the gay clubs and the nightclubs and, and you know, you're, you're up all night and, and w- nothing good happens after midnight, as my mom would say. So, uh, I mean, yeah, listen, the is, moms were not wrong again, about that. <laughs> and it's the true. Moms were I don't, not, it took me a I don't long disagree. time to realize <laughs> that they were absolutely right about that whole after midnight. For thing. sure. Yes. But, you know, I identify a lot, too, with what you're talking about, because even as a woman, you know, the first bar I was ever a regular at with a fake ID was a gay bar because I wasn't preyed on in there, right? It wasn't so predatory. Like I could just loosen up and be myself and nobody was on me or trying to be on me or following me. And, you know, it was, it was definitely a much safer and more comfortable environment to be in. And I loved it. You know, I always loved the clubs for sure. And then in LA, of course, that's just a whole other level. I've never been. I'm jealous. That's a whole other level. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 40 now, which is like 87 and gay. So I'm like past my my prime, Angela. (laughs) Well, I'm 50. I'm definitely past my prime for sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, Did you ever watch or see, I think this was, was probably just earlier this year, a documentary came out in a I think he was an NFL player 
And a lot of what you were talking about made me think of this guy. And if I would have known we were going to talk about this, I would have looked it up. But (laughs) it's a documentary, and I think it was on Netflix. And he was an NFL player, I think. And he was on The Bachelor. And he was engaged, and it was this big situation, right? And Is it Colton? I think so. Okay. I haven't watched it. I remember the buzz around it. I have to tell you, it was amazing Mm. because it showed his struggle and he talks in such an authentic and raw way about coming to terms with his own sexuality and what that looked like and how challenging it was and that he was going to live a straight lifestyle, obviously being on The Bachelor, getting engaged to a woman. He was never, ever, ever, ever going to be openly gay. Wow. And then, of course, it implodes, of course, <laughs> because when you're not living authentically, it's always going to implode one does. way or another. Yeah. But the documentary was so beautiful, and it was him really exploring who he was as a gay man with zero experience in being an older guy. Mm. I mean, it's not like he's just 21. You know, right. I don't know that he's much older than that, but, he- <laughs> um, but I mean, he's a young guy, but he's not super young. And and he's meeting all of these other people who are gay and they're taking him out and showing him the lifestyle. And it's like all these different oh, ways I'm running of to doing Netflix. it. Yeah, it was so good. And for him to see all these different examples of gay men living a gay lifestyle and some of them were club people and he's like, yeah, that's not so much my thing. He's an introvert. He's pretty shy. Then he sees this other couple who are married, kids, suburban home. And he's like, yes. yeah, I think this yeah. is more where I fit. But mm-hmm. it was so cool the way that they did it and really outlined so you could watch him learning about himself. And I was like, gosh, what a valuable piece of media this is, you know? That is, that's so, I love how you put that. It is valuable. And thinking about that eight-year-old Nate who could have snuck in and turned on Netflix and seen this portrayal or several different of life. It's life. It's not gay life. It's not straight life. It's being our authentic selves, being happy and living life. I think it's a similar thing that we go through when we get sober too, right? Because all of a sudden your lifestyle really shifts because my Mm. lifestyle was built around drinking. And all of a sudden I'm supposed to figure out this whole other way to be and function and socialize and date. And it's like, well, how the heck do you do that? Like, what does that look like? And same thing, going back to pop culture and media and not having a portrayal of what that looks like when everything you see is drunk. Everybody's celebration is drunk. Every wedding is drunk. Every holiday is drunk. Every, every first date is every meet first me for date. a drink. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and then all of the negative things too, right? It's have a drink to take the edge off. It's have a drink to get rid of your anxiety. Have yeah. a drink for this. Have a drink for that. When that's all you see and now all of a sudden I have to live in this drunk 
world and figure out how to be a sober person and figure out where that fits and figure out how the heck I even feel about it. Right. (laughs) Isn't that crazy that we are the outcast in a drunk world? Those of us who do not partake are not necessarily the oddballs or the outcasts, but the minority Minority for sure sure, existing in a drunk world. It's crazy to me. Yeah. And something too that's so dangerous, right? It's like, how did this thing that is so dangerous get to this level of not even just socially acceptable, but celebrated? You know, and I was guilty of the same thing. I mean, I used to talk about how much I could drink. Like I wore that as a badge of honor, you know, (laughs) like my tolerance. And I think about it now and I'm like, oh my God, that was sick. Like I was sick. That's not anything to be proud of. I was sick and in killing myself, you know, but yeah, it's (laughs) celebrated. So yeah, there just were so many parallels in all of those things, you know, and I would say the same thing to being an introvert. I think that creates other challenges also. And when you're not so social and, you're yeah. not, and oh, you don't sure. like for years, I thought I was an extrovert, but really I was just drunk. And <laughs> once I got sober and I was trying to do all the same things, I'm like, why is this so terrible? You I know. know? Yeah, because I, I'd rather be at home reading a book, you know? <laughs> I look at it almost as if it were this character that I was playing for so long of this like mask and this costume that I had on for so long as a version of myself that I thought, you know, that other people wanted to see or that I thought uh, made me more likable or that I thought was um, my true self or a way for me to interact, you know, more easy with other people. But, you know, when you peel those layers off or you, you know, get down to when I got down to my authentic self, it's like that was the version that I don't want to be. And now how do I exist in uh, this world that is around me that, that I'm learning things again and learning how to navigate yeah navigate life in this in this drunk world and all of that self-hatred right like i hated myself so Mm. passionately for many different reasons you know and i really identified with what you were saying too about having your own internal homophobia right because i was raised by boomers which you know were there's still a lot of misogyny Certainly 30, 40 years ago, you know, 50 years ago when I was being born, there was still a lot of misogyny. And I had a lot of that also because I was really raised in a way not to necessarily dislike women, but certainly not to respect women, right? It was men were who you respected. Mm, Men were the leaders. Men were who you followed. That's who you wanted to be more like and emulate, right? If you were too feminine, then you were not good. Like that was the message, right? Not worthy, not good, overlooked, minimized, dismissed, right? All of those things. So I had all of that internal stuff Mm. about myself too. And really challenging. I mean, those are challenging issues 
to figure out, to identify in yourself, to then start to modify those behaviors and those thinking patterns to not only be kinder to yourself, but to be kinder to the rest of the world too. <laughs> mm, you that's know, a great because, point. Yeah, because it's hard. I mean, it's hard to get rid of all of that stuff. And it's hard to respect people once you get well, and you're getting healthier and emotionally healthier. It's hard to respect people that taught you hate. Wow. Yes, that is that that is a very tough thing. And it's it's that sort of generational thing, right? Like, how do we break that and not continue to teach it? Yeah, that is that that's deep. That is deep. I had a guest actually recently. If if you go to the the sobriety diaries library, um, there there's a, a great episode about this sort of generational hate and really learning to. I don't even think forgive is the right word necessarily, but just being able to accept that that is them and that we do not have to continue that and or agree or share the same beliefs uh, that perhaps those that came before us do. Right. Absolutely. It is acceptance. And it's also that really getting out of blame. Right. I feel like mm. as human beings, we really put a lot of energy into figuring out who to blame. Everything yeah, has true. to be somebody's right. fault. Right. And it's really more certainly in those generational things like we're talking about. It's it's more like, listen, this is how that generation was brought up too. like that stuff was really deeply ingrained in them, too. It's not it's less of a choice, right? And more of a conditioning. Mm. So I don't need to blame and be angry at. I get to be really grateful that I don't behave that way or think that way. And really grateful that I have the opportunity to change. And I've had all of these beautiful people come into my life to help me learn and grow and be the person mm. that I truly want to be. So I can be in gratitude for that and have the acceptance for the other people with different thought processes and whatever. I'm not mad at anybody. So you know, true. it's yeah. just, Do I you. just get to, Do you, it, right. And it's such <laughs> a great mirror also in that always teaching you too. sometimes you learn from people who you want to be or how you want to be, but sometimes you learn what you don't want to be from people. And those exactly. are really valuable lessons also. I, I always say my, my very first manager right out of high school, I was, you know, this fresh faced little lad in the restaurant business. And she's my favorite manager, but I couldn't stand her. She taught me everything that I did not want to do as a leader in, in the rest of my life. And I still use some of her tactics in ways that I don't treat people. So totally agree yes. with that <laughs> tactic. Yes. Okay. Literally, I could talk to you forever. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't even know if this <laughs> episode makes episode. any sense. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot. This is like the Seinfeld of podcasts today. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like we're just talking about anything and everything. And that's okay because it all needs to be talked about. Okay. Um, last question, favorite question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? Gosh, my favorite thing about being a sober person 
is being trusted again. And we touched on this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but regaining that trust from people that it matters to me, people that I love and respect and appreciate trusting me again. And it didn't come right away. And I'm glad that it didn't. I'm glad that I had to earn their trust back. But when I did, it gives me goosebumps now talking about it. The best feeling in the world. And I love showing up for people. And I love continuing to build that trust. I love that. Nate, thank you for coming on and having another incredible conversation with me. I feel like we're going to have many, many more. Uh, You know it. You're you're coming back to me next. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.